Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word, and uh, Lord, yet another opportunity to jump right into it, Lord. I pray, God, that the words that I share would be your words, Lord, and, and, and Lord, not mine. And, and God, I pray, Lord, for your hand of blessing upon this time in our hearts, Lord, that we would uh, walk away from this place, Lord, closer to you, Lord, than when we came in, Lord. And, and I just pray for a touch, Lord, from your spirit, that we would be changed lives, Lord. Um, Lord, a lot of lessons we can learn from these churches and these letters that you wrote to the churches, Lord. And uh, we, uh, we just pray, God, that we would have an open heart, Lord, and, uh, and a mindset, Lord, of, of seeking you. So, Lord, we love you, God. We thank you. Go before us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are now on the church of Thyatira. Let's read in verse 18. It says this, it says, Now unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, of course, unto the, the messenger of the church or the pastor, so let the pastor know, and he'll pass the message on, right? Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now, um, these characteristics that are described, and we've talked about this, right? When we see the Lord appearing, when we see Christ appearing, there are certain attributes or characteristics associated with him. There's a certain way that he's described, and when he's described in that particular way, in the passage uh, that we're in, or at least in the area relevant to uh, the church that he's teaching or that he's speaking to, those characteristics should be looked at for just a second because they, they, they relatively value themselves with the message that God is giving to that particular church. And so um, he's saying, look, to the, to the church of Thyatira, I want you to write these things. And he's saying, look, this is what the Son of God says. And he describes the Son of God here as one who has eyes with a, of a flaming fire, right? Which we know, we, we, we've seen that description of him, right? And so the idea of the flame of fire is, is, the, is the concept of purity. We kind of get that idea. We see that. But look what it says. It says, and his feet are like fine brass. Now, um, it is interesting because when we look at the concept or we look at what brass typically stands for, brass is indicative of judgment, basically, okay? And so... Um, when we look at the feet of fine brass, the, the, the concept or the picture that we get is that we see the attributes of the characteristic of judgment. And oftentimes in judgment, there's a lot of characteristics that value themselves with judgment, right? There's things that you need. Look, if you're going to be a good judge and you're going to execute judgment and that judgment is going to be effective, there's certain characteristics that you really need to have as a judge, right? What do good judges have? Well, first of all, if you're a good judge, a good judge is going to have plenty of discernment. You know what I mean when I say that? Plenty of discernment. In other words, they're going to be able to make very clear distinctions between what is correct and what isn't correct. They're going to be able to understand the whole story, right? They're going to be able to listen to um, both sides of the story. They're going to be able to discern what is actually true, what's correct. They're going to have some wisdom to be able to sort of get through some of the things that, that they need to get through. And there's some re really good examples of judges who had, or people who had to execute judgment, who did very good as judges just because they had great discernment. One of the examples that I would give you, and of course, we talk about wisdom as well. You know, discernment and wisdom is King Solomon. You remember King Solomon? King Solomon had a situation where there were two women that went before him, right? And if you remember, there were two women. They went to bed, both of them, collectively. They go to bed at the same time. They both have their children by their sides, right? 
one of the women, uh, in essence, rolls over her child. The child dies, right? And so what that woman kind of does is kind of switches the children around and says, oh, this is my child and your child just died, you know, type thing. And so uh, they go before Solomon and, and one of them says, this is my child and my child is alive. And then the other one says, no, my child is actually alive and her child is dead. And so, you know, this is a big, di- this is a big deal. It's like if you're a judge and someone's going before you and there's a dispute like this going on, how do you handle the situation? Well, Solomon, the way he decides to handle the situation, there's both of the mothers right there, right? And, and you know, the, you've got uh, two mothers fighting over one child who's alive. They both claim that the child is theirs, right? And there's really no way, there were no DNA tests back then or anything like that, right? So Solomon says, okay, no problem, we'll handle this. Hey, 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 come over here, Jeeves. You know, whatever. He calls his servant over, not Jeeves, but he's coming, he calls a servant over and the servant comes by and he says, give me that sword. And he picks up the sword and he says, give me that baby. And he goes to, to grab the baby. He's like, I'm going to just cut the baby in half and you can have half the baby and you can have the other half of the baby. And so one of the ladies says, yeah, that's a great idea. Go ahead and slice the baby up, right? And then another one says, this is a true story. And the other one says, no, 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 no. The baby's not mine. No, no, it's okay. You can have, that baby can go with the other mom. It's okay. And so, yeah. So Solomon said, well, the one who said, you know, cut the baby in half, we know that ain't the mom. Right? That's not the real mom. And the one, the one who basically said, no, give the baby up, that's obviously the true mom because the true mom doesn't want to see their child die, even if it means that she won't be able to watch over the child. Now, that is a judge that has considerable discernment, right? Also, not only discernment, but tremendous wisdom. He had the ability to be able to discern and see what was going on. And so the picture of Jesus uh, that we get as he's addressing Thyatira, we get this picture of Jesus with these brazen feet. The idea is he is this judge. He is the judge. It's the picture of him being judged. It's the God of judgment, which has to imply several things. It has to imply absolutely just in his judgment, right? If he's a good judge, that's what he's going to do. If he's going to execute judgment, that means this. He's discerning. He has to be discerning. He has to be able to know. He has to sit in a room and he has to be able to understand in a room what is what, who goes where, and that kind of a thing. And Jesus, we know, we know that when the Lord comes back as judge, we know that when he comes back to judge the world, we know that as he judges us now, looking down upon us, that his judgment is completely just. We know that it's just. We know that it's fair, we know that it's righteous, we know that it's perfect, and we know that it's true. He has to do it, otherwise he wouldn't be a just God. And so in his uh, discerning, in his discernment, in his capability of understanding and seeing things, he just executes that judgment. Now, it is interesting, because as he's judging Thyatira, as he's the one that's actually writing a letter to Thyatira, it doesn't mean I'm going to judge you like crush you under my feet and smash you, right? That can't be part of judgment. But the kind of judgment that we're seeing is, hey, this is the God who discerns. He's seeing what's going on with the church. He understands. You know what's and and it's beautiful when you think about the eyes that are flaming fire. The idea is his eyes that what he sees, his vision, what he looks at is pure. It's unadulterated. He's looking at things completely clearly. There is no lack of sober mindedness. There's nothing like that. God sees things with just this beautiful, perfect element of sobriety. And there's just something absolutely special about this type of thing. 
right? When you see someone who executes that type of judgment. And so here's the picture. He's the one who's got eyes unto a flame of fire and his feet are like a fine brass. Now, he says this, and it is interesting. He makes this declaration, which of course is not the first time we see him make a declaration like this with the church. He says, I know thy works. So what does he mean when he says that? He says, I am fully aware of the things that you do. Now, the church, of course, was very, very good at works, if you know what I mean. In other words, they went out, they were serving people, they were caring for people, they were, they were busting their tails. They were the church that when people called for volunteers, there were hundreds of people that showed up, so to speak, that did the work. They were people that were very active in the community, very likely. There were people that were feeding the poor. They were doing all kinds of busy stuff. You know what I mean? And he says, look, I know, I see that you, you know, I see that. He says, and your charity. I see your love. I notice, I can discern the love that you have. He also says this. He says, I see your service. Now, you can have works. You can have love. You can have service. You, you're the type of people you go down, you serve people. This would be the type of church that if you went to this church and, and, and um, you, know, you saw a piece of trash on the floor, that piece of trash wouldn't exist very long because somebody in that group would go and pick up the, the piece of trash and they would throw it away. This was the type of church that they were. They were a serving church. They were the type of church that, man, you know, and, and it's interesting. You know what a serving church looks like. You know, I, I had a friend that uh, asked me to come speak at his church uh, a few years ago, and, and I went to his church, and it was sort of on the border of Inglewood and, and kind of like that, that south, it's southeast Los Angeles County area. But we get over there, and we are straight. I'm telling you, we are straight in the middle of the hood. I mean, you want to talk about hood. We are like Manchester and like, I, it was like, you know, be, not great area, right? And so we're, we're smack dab in the middle of the hood. You walk into the church and the church is a small little building. There's really no, or the church building is a small little building. There's a big fan that blows across the room so that it kind of goes out. They, they kind of don't want to keep the door open because they're, you know, people can come in and rob you, but they're kind of scared to not keep the door open because it's so hot. And, you know, it's just kind of, one of these things and they don't have much to offer you right you go over there and you kind of sit and it's just basically this family that's that's really what it is it's 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 one or two families that come together but when you walk in you can just see that this is a very serving kind of a church right they're very accommodating to you they want to help you from your car into the you know into the church they want to welcome you and they want to be up they want to wait on you hand and foot you can typically tell or discern when a church is is a serving church when there's sort of a, you know, they don't have to be a big church to be a serving church. They just simply have to be people who are willing to serve. And, and you know that there are people like that. You see them around. You, you walk into churches where you see people, man, they're serving. They're all about serving, right? And so they were a church of service, right? They were also a church of faith, right? They had faith. In other words, they got it. They, they had the ability to be able to rely upon the Lord. They had the ability to be able to trust in God. That wasn't even an issue with them. He says, your patience, and then he repeats again, your works. Listen, you guys were not the type of people that were in a row. Oh, come on, let's go. Let's go right now, right now. They weren't this gratify now type of people. They weren't the, hey, I've got, a, I've, I've got a, a, an itch on my back. You need to scratch it for me. They weren't that type of church. They were like, look, we are patient. We're okay. We're willing to hang. It's going to be fine. This is not a big deal. Everything's all good. They were, they were a very enduring church. And, and again, the Lord also emphasizes, emphasizes again, your works. And he says, and the last to be more 
than the first. In other words, you were very good as a church. You are very good at scoping out those people, taking the time to scope out those people that were the most underserved, the people that really needed to be helped and ministered to, that you're going out there and you're ministering to them, you're caring for them, people that can't care for themselves, you're going and you're taking it upon yourself to minister to them. And I think that even at this church, we're very good at that. We're very good at finding people who are struggling, finding people who are having a difficult time, maybe people that are that you know that most people in society would go to and look at and say, you know what, you're a zero, but we're going to come and minister to you because we love you. You know that type of a thing? You take those that would be considered last and you make them first. And by the way, that has to ta- that takes a particular gift to be able to do, right? That isn't something that just comes naturally. It doesn't come naturally for somebody to say, hey, you know what, you're a homeless guy, but I'm going to treat you as though you're a filthy rich guy. That takes a specific gift. That isn't something that just comes naturally or comes easy. And I believe that even our church has that that characteristic, right? So there's all kinds of beautiful things. Now, anybody, and I mean anybody, who would walk into a church like that and see a church behave that way would instantly, and I mean automatically say, man, that church has their act together. They're amazing people. What a wonderful church. There's nothing wrong with this body. There's, there's, they're all good. There's no issues. There's not, they've got everything together. Everything is perfect. Everything is wonderful. Oh yeah? Not so much. Because the God of all discernment, the God of all understanding actually sees some of the problems. See, you can do all of the things that are listed here as a church and still miss the mark in some ways, right? Look, we could spend a a moment, not that I really want to spend a moment uh, uh, talking about the Catholic Church because I have no desire to bag on the Catholic Church because I don't think anyone gets anywhere by doing that. But I look at people that have existed within the Catholic Church and I've watched people representing the Catholic Church that have done some of the most extraordinary things to all of humanity as things that can be done. Here's a perfect example. You think of Mother Teresa. Who doesn't think of a woman like Mother Teresa and say, you know, well, that's a, that woman is all messed up or whatever. Come on, are you kidding me? She, she's like Billy Graham to me. I, I, if she were still alive, I would have loved to have met her and put my arms around her and give her a kiss and said, thank you so much for all that you do for the world. It's because of people like you that the world is a better place, right? I mean, this is a woman who stepped out of her comfort zone completely and for her whole life dedicated herself to taking care of kids that are living on the streets of Calcutta. I mean, come Come on! Does it get any better than a woman like that? I actually believe that that woman is with the Lord right now. I think that she loved Jesus Christ with all of her heart because there's no way in the world you can do the kind of things that she did without loving Christ with all of your heart to want to do the right thing, right? And I believe there's lots of people I have met. I know lots of people that are in the Catholic Church. I know lots of them that I'm convinced will be in heaven if they die today. Because their love for Jesus is unquestionable. Their faith in Christ is unquestionable. But just like any church and just like any place that claims to have any association with Christianity, there are always those things that the Lord would have against them. And what he's talking about here when he talks about Thyatrius is you have all your works together. There's a lot of good things that are going on, but yet I have this against you. And, and, and by the way, when you, you know, you look at it at an element like the Catholic Church, you can actually see the characteristic that God is about to hold against them here. It says this. It says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against you. Look what he says. He says, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce by servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. 
Now, it's interesting to talk about Jezebel. Who is Jezebel? Well, you remember Jezebel, right? Jezebel was one of the most evil women in existence in the Bible. The way she died was, uh, that's a whole other story. But you, you look at the, the evil of this woman. You look at the characteristics of this woman. This woman was a horrible, horrible woman. She was a type of woman who inspired her husband to great and intense and considerable depths of evil. I've talked about this, guys. Look, I've said this many, many times. I think that women are the ones that are typically more in, t- more in tune spiritually than men are. And the, and, and the danger that comes with that, there's a blessing that comes with that, there's a danger that comes with that. The danger that that comes with is I think because of their spiritual intonation or inclination, I actually believe that women can reach lower depths than men could possibly reach. They can reach areas of lower depths of depravity than, than the average man can because they can reach into that element, that spiritual element that drives them to a place of the type of evil that very, very few men could actually reach towards because of their their, their inclination to the spiritual things. But at the same time, that comes with a great advantage. And I believe women can actually become much closer in a certain sense to the things of God. They can, they can reach greater spiritual heights because of the, the, the inclinations that God has built within them towards spiritual things. And Jezebel was an example of one of those women that, whoo, she went to the depths of depravity. She touched the surfaces of hell with the kind of evil that she did. In the Old Testament, when you learn of the story of Jezebel, Jezebel actually continually encouraged her husband to walk in the, in the depths of depravity of evil. She was a woman who, who literally inspired, inspired her husband to do evil things. There's a particular story that I remember that just makes me mad at Jezebel. You know, I know that she's already dead, but kind of makes me want to choke her out. You know, anyway, you know what I mean? When you hear about this story, but there's a story. You remember her, her, her husband wanted a piece of land. You remember that story? And, and he couldn't get the piece of land, right? So Jezebel, you know, he comes back to Jezebel and he cries like a little baby, you know? Oh, I can't get the land that I wanted. Oh, he won't give me the land. Oh. And Jezebel says, oh, yeah, I'll tell you how to get the land. Oh, probably a little horns coming out of her head, you know, type thing. And, and, and Jezebel, and what does Jezebel do? She encourages her husband. She goes to her husband. She encourages her husband to basically, hey, look, you can take that land if you kill the dude. Just go murder him, you know? And, of course, that's in, act, in essence sort of what happens, and Jezebel's responsible for that guy getting killed. And, and, and that was, she was an evil woman. And one of the things that she was attributed towards, the characteristic that is probably the, the greatest attribution of her actions, the mark and the characteristic of her life, was that she helped to lead a nation in the worship of Ba'il, of Baal. Like literally led a nation into a place of evil. It is funny. I I heard somebody recently. I actually talked to somebody about this recently. Well, maybe a few years back who actually believes that God strictly prohibits races from intermixing in marriage. Right? That, well, you shouldn't be marrying another race. If you're white, you need to marry white people. If you're black, you need to marry black folk. If you're Mexican, you need to marry Mexican folk. If you're from so-and-so, you need to... Why? Because God doesn't allow the intermingling of races. Where do you get that from? Well, just read the Bible. In the Bible, you can see God prohibited the Jews from marrying any other person. So we shouldn't be marrying other people. We shouldn't be marrying other races. You know, that kind of like, whoa, okay, you're crazy. 
Why? Because it wasn't, the picture was not. Listen, you can go to the Bible and the Bible will say, do not marry any woman from this nation, you men, or you women don't marry any men from this nation. And it had nothing to do with the race or where they came from. He did not want them to marry people from other nations because people in other nations, in essence, worshipped other gods. And the introduction of them worshipping other gods through marriage was something that would be far more detrimental to the health of the nation. You guys remember that story, right? You understand. This is why God didn't want that to happen. There's another story that I can remember. And and we see example after example after example of this throughout the the Old Testament. If you remember Balaam, you remember the prophet? We we talked about Balaam. We talked about him a few weeks ago. This was a guy who, man, the the king hires him and the the opposing king to to Israel hires him and says, hey, listen, I need you to proclaim. Look, it's not a big deal. I'll pay you all the money you want. You're a prophet. I just need you to proclaim a curse upon Israel. So that I could just beat them down. I just, that's what I need you to do. I need God to curse them. No, dude, sorry. It doesn't work that way, bro. I can't do that. You know? What do you mean? I got all this money. Just say it. Can't do it. Little prophet begins to walk away. And he's like, man, that money looks really good. Let's see if there's anything I can. So he starts thinking. And he says, I got a way around this. So what does he do? He goes back to the king. He says, hey, look, here's a way you can solve the problem. But you solve the problem is this. You get some really pretty girls from your country, right? You pick up some and get them to seduce the guys. The guys start to have sex with them. They'll fornicate. They'll sin against God. And then they'll start practicing all the evil practices that, that, that your nation does. And God will curse Israel for that. Then you'll be able to beat Israel down. Remember that whole story? And that's exactly what happened. If you remember the, the story about that, Balaam's walking with his donkey. He's coming around the mountain. You remember that whole story, right? He's coming around the mountainside. And as he is, he's all you know, happy, probably counting his money, whatever. He comes around the, the mountain. And this donkey that he's got right by him just stops. Doesn't want to go any further. So Balaam is like, come on. Donkey doesn't want to move. So he gets frustrated. He starts hitting the donkey. Come on. Come on. And the donkey turns around at him and says, what are you doing? Literally talks to him. I told you we got to go. The donkey turns around. He says, hey, knucklehead, can't you see the angel of the Lord around the corner? Waiting? He's got a sword. He's waiting to, to, to kill you. Isn't it funny? I, that's why I'm always encouraged. I, I know if God can use a talking, God can use a donkey to talk. He can use me to teach a Bible. That's for sure. I mean, you think about that story. But the picture is the, the reason why Balaam was someone who was going to be judged by God, who was, who was just in a very bad place with God, was because he led people into the worship of other gods. And that's exactly what Jezebel did. Jezebel led people into the worship of other gods. Now, was the church itself here in Thyatira leading people to worship other gods? Not necessarily. What was actually happening was they were allowing this person to teach that was seducing people into the worship of other gods and into other things. Now, what does that mean? What would be the sort of the, the, the common way to look at this or the, the more modern day way of looking at this? Well, there's lots of pastors that are doing this now. There's a lot of people that are getting behind the pulpit and they're causing others to get distracted by things outside of the things of God, right? We see it a lot. We see guys get behind the pulpit. They're teaching the health and wealth doctrine, right? They're encouraging people. Hey, you want to live a, a wonderful, beautiful life? Let me just give you advice concerning practical living. And, and let me show you how you can make a few extra dollars. And if you, you know, trust here, you'll get this. Or if you 
you do this, you'll do that. And you just think you're like, wow, you guys are standing behind the pulpits of the country today and you are causing people to look astray. You are getting people interested in anything other than God. You're getting, in, you're getting them interested in the social clubs. You're getting them interested into legal causes. You're getting them interested in all kinds of things, but you're not showing them the Lord. You're not giving them the things of God. And what was happening was this woman was up there teaching, and this woman was literally leading people down a road that was very, very negative. Look, I have a very, very serious uh, stigma that exists within me. Uh, regarding the people that I have up here teaching. I am very, very careful about who I ask or who I, who I want to be behind this pulpit. The type of people that I allow to even teach in this church, I take very, very seriously. Why? Because I do not want to be a man who is responsible for people being led astray by the poor teaching of another person or the teaching of another person that might actually do some damage or harm. I remember getting a call from somebody when, uh, when we first started Calvary Chapel Signal Hill. This was a person who was, he was literally raised up with my family in the sense that he's been a long-time family friend. He's from the Middle East, and he called me up and he said, uh, James, you're wonderful. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread. You're great. You're wonderful. You're wonderful. Listen, I need you to give me a, a Sunday morning so I can come and teach your church. Translation, I'd like to be able to speak to your audience so I can ask for money. He's get back to me. No, 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 no. You don't. Uh, no, you don't have to hang up. I don't need to get back to you. No, you, you, you won't be coming here to teach. I remember you when you were a little boy. Now you're telling me I can't teach. Why? It's loud and it's in Arabic at this point. You know what I mean? And I said, look, Dad. No, no, I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. I'm joking. I'm joking. No, 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 I didn't say that. No, no, no. I'm not talking about my dad. I said, I said, look, here's the deal. I've seen you say things lately. I've seen you say things lately that aren't biblical. You're making some crazy claims. Well, he got angry. You know, got upset, flew off the handle a little bit. And he said, well, maybe you consider me a little bit later. I said, no, I won't. I'm more scared of the consequence that will be created by God's judgment upon me than I am of the consequence of you getting upset at me. I'm not going to let you stand behind the pulpit and poison the mind of the people in the body of Christ. It's not going to happen. Okay. This church wasn't necessarily concerned about those things. They were allowing a doctrine to come into the fellowship and a teaching to come into the fellowship that was leading people astray. It is interesting that the woman Jezebel would actually be mentioned here. It is interesting that she in particular would, would be speaking, and I think, or she in particular would be mentioned, and I think that there's something to say about the gifting that God gives to many women. Oftentimes, I think women can be better communicators than men in some respects, right? And they can get up with great influence, and they can communicate, and they can have a tremendous impact on people. But in this particular case, that ability, that natural ability, was not used for the glory of God. It was used to cause people to be led astray. And the Lord had a serious issue with that. By the way, that teaching that was going on was enough to cause the people of God to commit fornication. In other words, to participate in evil acts that are contrary to that which is the message of the gospel. And that was going on in the church. 
right? And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. In other words, here's the idea. I gave her an opportunity to change. I gave her an opportunity to, to, to repent. I sook to correct her. I sook to, gave her, to give her insight. I, I, I did what I could to deal with the hearts, to allow people to make a change, and there was no desire to make that change. By the way, we're seeing that happening in churches today. We're seeing it happening again and again and again and again. It'll blow your mind how many times I've had a lady hand me a business card that says, you know, so my name is so-and-so, you know, female pastor, right, which in and of itself is not a biblical concept right female pastor and then it says you know gay and lesbian association or something like that and i just look and i'm thinking how in the world can you continue with a good conscience how can you call yourself a pastor number one and take it even a step further how can you call yourself a gay christian it doesn't work now don't get me wrong listen if there's people here in this church or people who's listening to me that's dealing with homosexuality listen the lord loves you and are you welcome at this church of course you are we love you we want you to be a part of this fellowship but we love you enough and we care about you enough to teach you to, to that you would understand that that is not something that god desires for you if you, if you live the rest of your life with the desire to have sex with the same sex, it's okay to have that desire in your heart. It's not okay to capitulate to that desire. It's not okay to give in to that desire. All of us have unnatural desires. All of us have desires that oftentimes are not pleasing to God. It has nothing to do with the desire itself. It has everything to do with what you teach yourself is acceptable in acting out those desires. And this woman was saying, hey, kind of do whatever you want. Just kind of go with the flow. It's all good. Do what feels good. No big deal. Everything's going to be okay. Reality, it's not. Nothing's going to be okay. Everything's going to get worse. Everything's going to get unhealthy. Everything's going to be destructive. That's, that's the, the concept. But she didn't want to repent. Look at this in verse 22. It says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed and let them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. In other words, I will allow them to suffer. I will allow them to walk into the place of suffering unless they repent. Listen, what the, the context of all of this, what he's talking about is the most critical type of adultery that can exist, right? What kind of adultery is it? Spiritual adultery. You make a commitment to Christ and now you walk away from that commitment because you're yielding yourself to the worship of other things. You're looking at objects, you're looking at material gain, whatever it might be. There's all kinds of affections that are, uh, that are literally racing for your attention. And whatever affection it is that you yield yourself to that's outside of Christ, if whatever thing it is that you give yourself to first and foremost, that becomes your God and that's committing spiritual adultery. That's literally cheating on the God of your fathers. It's literally saying, Lord, you know what? I'm going to take a little break and go hang out with this girl. Right? You think a relationship like that would work if you're as a married person? How many of you people are married? Raise your hand. Right? Raise your, okay, quite a few of you. Think it works if you come home late at night? You go, uh, oh, hey, babe, uh, listen, um, I've been a little bothered by you tonight. You know, I'm going to go hang out with this girl tonight, okay? I'll be back, you know, if, if I feel like it, I'll come back. I'll come back tomorrow and we'll catch up. I'll let you know how the night went. Right? Wouldn't work, would it? It'd actually be pretty ugly. Marriage would not survive. Your marriage wouldn't survive for even saying that, right? But we do it all the time spiritually with the Lord. We say, hey, you know what? 
I don't feel like spending the evening with you. I'm going to take off and go hang out with somebody else. Ooh, we do it a lot, don't we? What are some of the things that we commit spiritual adultery with? We can commit spiritual adultery with just a simple act of busyness. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to be busy and so on and so forth. And, and in reality, it is a one thing that can create, it, it can literally create a, an element of destruction. I will tell you this, I'll say it again and again and again. If you find yourself in a place where you're becoming spiritually distracted in a particular area, do whatever it takes to get your mind and your heart right with the Lord. I don't care how busy you are. I don't care how many meetings you have lined up. I don't care what's going on. You need to make it a point to make sure you've got time under your belt with the Lord. And if that means you're, you're getting a late start to your day, or if that means you've got to skip out on a meeting, or if that means there's, there's certain things you've got to give up in order to get that done, get it done. Because you're no good, absolutely no good if you don't tend and yield to that which is the most important. If you walk in spiritual adultery, if you watch it, walk in spiritual fornication, you are never going to experience the benefit that God wants you to have in walking with him. Don't be that person. Do whatever it takes to get your mind and your heart set on the things of God. And if it means that things take a little bit longer to do, then let so be it. Let those things take a little bit longer to do because you're no good to whatever it is that you want to do if your heart and your mind isn't set correctly on the things of God. We've talked about this many, many times. One of the things that I had a training officer uh, right when I started up as a chaplain. And, and uh, you know, they always make sure, even as a chaplain, they would always make sure that you had a certain level of training, right? So you go into the streets and they, they, they just make sure you, you have an understanding of what's going on around there. And I had a training officer that would always say this. He'd say, boy, that's what he would tell you. That's the way he talked to me. Oh, boy, listen, I'm going to tell you a little story. He said, if you get a phone call and that call says you've got to go somewhere, there's an emergency You be careful how you drive on the road, boy. Why? Isn't that what the lights and sirens are for? Are you any good if you're going 80 miles an hour down the street? And and he said it in a much more colorful way than the way I'm telling you right now. He's cursing left and right, so on and so forth. You any good if you go 80 miles an hour down the street with the lights and sirens on and you crash into something and you're injured and other people are dead? And you can't get to whoever you're going to help. Are you any good doing that? I guess not. And I don't care if you got to go 25 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour street. Get there safe or the other officer asking for help dies. Ooh. What's the rookie mindset? The rookie mindset. I got to do whatever it takes to get there as fast as I can. I've been in many, by the way, I've been in many police cars with rookies who I, I remember this one kid. I still remember him like it was yesterday. I'm in a police car with him. We get an emergency call. Literally, you got to go over there. There's an officer who's asking for help. He's in the middle of a fight. It's a ugly fight. It's a bad fight. And the day is, fo- I mean, it's foggy. It's at night. It's just the fog is so thick, right? And he says, okay, we're rolling over there. Turns on his lights, you know, lights and sirens. And if you've ever been in a police car, on a foggy day, and you turn on lights and sirens, it makes everything more confusing, right? Because the lights are going, everything, it's just a freaky kind of a thing. And I'm in the car, and I'm like, dude, we're going down a residential street on a foggy day. You can't see more than 20 feet ahead of you, and you are going 80 miles an hour. You have lost your ever-loving mind. 
And I'm yelling at him. Slow down. Slow down. You know, I'm just yelling at him like I want to just sock him in the face. Like, Craig, slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. And finally, we get to the call. And I'm not kidding you. This is no exaggeration. I I didn't even see it. I didn't even know how he saw it. He's got his foot on the brake so hard that we're, um, we're almost lunging into the windows. And he stops literally three or four inches short of the officer who's on the ground wrestling with the suspect. We almost ran them both over. Now there's a spiritual illustration here, isn't there? We allow the busyness of life to get us going, 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 going. And because we don't take the time to slow down and make the main thing the main thing, we either end up almost injuring or destroying the lives of other people or we'll do it ourselves. The point is, sometimes you've got to put the car in park and take a moment to say, Lord, me and you are going to spend some time together. Until the day, look, if you don't do that, if you don't take the time to do that, you are going to end up committing spiritual adultery. You're going to say, well, you know what? I'm going to just, whatever, I'm just going to do. And that's what happens. We get so overwhelmed. And I see, guys, listen, women, please forgive me for saying this. I'm not, I'm, please, I'm not trying to take it out on you at all. But I see this happen more with women than I see it with men. Because what happens is you build up so much anxiety about what's in front of you. Oh, I got to do this. Oh, I got to do this. so much. I got to do it. I don't know. There's not enough time in the day or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. And you go and go and go and go. Oftentimes you're working harder than, than the average man, right? You're going for it. You're going for it. You're going for it. And you just, you just feel so overwhelmed. But you don't take a moment to say, okay, I'm feeling overwhelmed. This is the time I need to stop. This is the time I need to not worry about all the tasks that are before me. And I need to get my heart and my life right with the Lord. And I'm going to do that. I'm going I'm to seek the Lord. I'm going to just get right. And I know it might cost me. I, I might not be able to, to do that extra task that I needed to do. But at least my heart is in the right place. And if your heart is in the right place, you're going to be a whole lot more effective. It's kind of like the story of the guy who takes the time to sharpen the axe instead of swinging the dull axe. You take the time to sharpen the axe. As you do that, you take that time. It's a whole lot easier to cut down the tree, isn't it? So you don't want to be a person who's guilty of committing spiritual adultery. I see this a lot. May we not be that thing, Right? Guys, we're just outright dumb. It has nothing to do with, with you know, we're, we're so inundated and busy or whatever. We just look at shiny metal objects and we tend to like those more than we like anything else. Oh, look at that. Oh, oh. Right? And we put down our Bibles and we put down the things of God for that next shiny metal object. And that's kind of the way we are. We're like, ooh, wow, you know, fire. Oh, you know, that's kind of the way we are. And the reality of it is, we don't want to be people who are distracted. We need to get right. We need to walk away from these things. Look at what he says here, guys. This is really strong language. This is harsh language. He says, and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to to your works. In other words, when he talks about children, I will kill the children. The the, the picture isn't, I'm going to judge your children by killing them. That's not the idea. Remember, we're talking about spiritual terms here. What he's saying is the offspring of what you do, the natural results of your works in that state of being will be put to death. In other words, it, it's, it's not going to be effective. How many times have we seen that? How many times have we seen these massive social programs go on and you see no power in those things? You know what I'm talking about? You see absolutely no power. I, I remember the, the strip joint that's over here, right? They just had a shooting earlier this week. Another person got killed. 
Right here at Signal Hill, on, right on, on 28th and Walnut. You know I used to drive by that bar on a regular basis and ask the Lord to burn it down? Every single time I drove by that strip joint, I used to say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, will you burn that building down? Just burn it. Destroy it. One day he answered my prayers. I'm not kidding. The place burned down almost completely to the ground. I remember when I heard the news, yes, praise you, Lord. No exaggeration. It was rebuilt and in better shape within three days. Not joking. That's not a joke. That's not a joke. You know what lesson the Lord taught me about that when I saw that happen? He said, James, if you want real power in this situation, you need to pray that the strippers get to know me. You need to pray that the business owner gets to know me. You need to pray that the patrons come to know me. Think about it this way. Let's take any one of the members of that equation. Let's say all the people that go to the strip joint get convicted by the Holy Spirit and somehow come to know the Lord. Can the strip joint exist as a business if there's nobody there to pay? Or how about all the strippers that walk into that building come to know the Lord? And the building owners can't find a stripper to start working there. Can the business survive? Probably not. Or how about the business owners come to know the Lord? And carry powerful conviction of the Holy Spirit. Will that business be around much longer? No, probably turn into a church or something. I don't know. Right? It'd be a little weird, but you know, you, you, get, the, you get the idea. Right? The, the, the point is, the point is, the fruit of your labor, if it is not inspired by the Holy Spirit, will always be put to death. You can go and you can do all kinds of social work and all kinds of positive things and you can do it in the name of whatever you want to do it. And you can do it under the influence of, you know, whatever it might be. You can commit great spiritual adultery, not really walk with God, and you can do whatever social program you want. It could be huge. It could be on a massive scale. You could give away 15,000 backpacks to all kinds of kids in the inner city. There's all kinds of things you can do. But there can be, you can do that and there be no power. The offspring of that is just simple enablement of evil. Or you can simply say, Lord, I'm going to be filled with the Spirit and the works that I do, I want to glorify you and that offspring actually bring life. See, the idea is, if you're committing spiritual adultery, church and Thyatira, the works that you do, the offspring of your adultery, the fruit of your labor will be put to death. There's going to be nothing here that's going to, that's going to bring any kind of benefit. Those are heavy, heavy words. Look what it goes on to say. He says, and all the churches shall know that I am uh, he which searches the reins in the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. In other words, you're going to get yours. Whatever it is that you choose to do, whether to be glorify God or not glorify God, you will be recompensed accordingly. That's the idea. Look what it goes on to say. It says, but unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. 
In other words, for those of you that have not capitulated to this synagogue, this house of Satan where Satan exists, you know what? I'm not going to tell you. There's nothing else I have to say to you. You're doing the perfect thing. If you're not committing spiritual adultery, this is, he's saying this in particular to the church in Thyatira. If you're not worshiping other icons, you're not doing these things, you're just simply worshiping me, I've got nothing to say to you. You're on the right road. Isn't that important? It really, that's really all that matters, isn't it? It's the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. Now, now think about this. Here's the exhortation. Hold on to what you have already. Now there's a, there's a picture there, isn't there? In other words, take the time to focus on that which is glorifying to God and hold fast to that. And do it until I come back for you. Make a commitment. Make a dedication in your heart to seek God. Put it first. Don't allow yourself to be given to anything else. Make him the love and the passion of your life. Look what he says in verse 26. He says, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. By the way, it says, To him that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. Well, didn't he just celebrate the church of Thyatira for their works? Yes. But why does he say, if you hold my works until the end, if you're going to overcome and hold the works, everything's going to be okay? Well, because you have to do it with the intent or the the consideration or the focus on being on Christ and not doing works just, just for the sake of it, committing spiritual adultery. That's the picture here. It's with that understanding, right? He says, keepeth my works. That's the, 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 the phrase. Notice this. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father. Now that's a great promise. You're going you're gonna to be able to rule and reign with Christ, right? So obviously there's some implications there as it relates to the millennial period and so on and so forth. It's a pretty amazing thing. And it says here, it says, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? Look what he says at the end of Revelation chapter 1. Let's go back for just a second. He says in verse 20, he says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks are uh, which thou hast sauce are the seven churches. And then at the end here, he says, I will give him the morning star. The, the, the picture or the beauty of that is that God will bring to those people that hold fast that element of enlightenment. Your vision will be made clear. Your ability to be able to see that, that which is in front of you will be made correct. There's a beautiful picture that we get there, right? By the way, who, in essence, is the perfect example of the bright morning star? The star that sits there and gives you guidance and gives you light. It's Christ. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're being promised the gift of Jesus. You do realize, right, that when you go to heaven, you're going to heaven because of what Jesus did for you, not because of what you did. You realize that you're wearing Jesus' righteousness, which absolves you from having to do any work to obtain your salvation. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to, unto the church. In other words, listen, if you, everyone might think, oh, well, this, this, this message was only to the church in Thyatira. Well, that might be true until you hear the words, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So now this message that the Spirit of God is giving, that Jesus is giving, that the Father is giving to the churches, this message that's being repeated is supposed to be for our benefit as well. If you have an ear, you can listen. You need to listen. Because there's an application that's gained. Here's, the, here's the, the summary of the matter, guys. The summary of the matter is keep your eyes holy on Jesus, right? Don't stray to the left or to the right. In a few weeks, we're going to jump into the events that take place in the future. We're going to start getting into future events. I promise you something. I promise you you're going to want to have your faith and total trust in Jesus Christ because you are not going to want to go through what we're going to read in the upcoming period of Revelation. You want to be on the right side of history on this one. You do not want to go through the Great Tribulation. You do not want to be a part of it. And the Lord has called, he's promised us that he's going to be rapturing his church. We're not going to be a part of that Great Tribulation. We're not. It's funny. There's a lot of people that freak out about the thought that they might be left in the Great Tribulation. People somehow mistakenly think that God is going to allow his church to be left in, in, you know, in that mess. And of course, that brings out the whole survivalist world. And you've got people, oh, save your guns. And you're not going to be able to eat food. And you know, we're going we're gonna, to, you just, here's a, you know, for, for you know, $59.99, you can get a guide on how to store food. And you know, dig a shelter and you know, you know, buy lots of rounds of ammo because people are going to come for your food and they're going to try to kill you and you're going to need to kill them. And yeah, praise God, you know? Let's, let's be Christians and shoot at people. And, you know, it like, doesn't even make sense, right? It doesn't even make sense. We're not going to be subject to any of that. If we're walking with Christ, all we have to do is put our faith and trust in him. We're not going to be subject to those things. So let this be a call to you. If your commitment is not there with the Lord, get it there with the Lord, right? And what does it mean to be there with the Lord? Simply say, Jesus, I need you. I need your help. That's it. It's very simple. It has nothing to do with anything else that you do. And then your goal, your responsibility, your mindset, your heart should always be to seek God and to put him first. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for the church here that's gathering. I see so many people here on a Sunday night. It's such a blessing that they're coming to hear from your word, Lord. You promise in your word, Lord. You promise in the book of Revelation that the people who come to study this book will be blessed. And I believe that that's happening, Lord. It's awesome to see so many people come out. So many people be blessed, Lord, by your word. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for the opportunity that I have, Lord, to be able to share with the body of Christ, to be sharing with your people, Lord, concerning your truths. And we thank you for the great message that this book provides for us. We love you, Lord. Keep us seeking you, Lord. Keep us walking with you, Lord, that we would keep steadfast upon you, that our eyes would be laid upon you, Lord, never to turn back. So, Lord, we love you, God. We thank you. And we just ask these things now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.